Julian. Where did I meet Julian? <laughs> it's a good story. So there's a guy, uh, Mikey Moran, who is the co-founder of Gojek, who did a speak up here. And he in turn invited me and a few other people to go and do a similar thing at his place, Bali Prior. So we had this panel going. I think it was the first or second one they did there. And we're talking about business and other things. And at one point, it was kind of thrown out to the audience, right? To have any questions or insights or to help us or guide us or just tell us what they thought was happening. So, so this guy, <laughs> a handsome man, clearly. But he was out there wearing white, standing by the bar at the back. And the microphone gets, gets to him. I'm like, okay, I wonder what this guy's got to say, you know? In the back of my mind, that little voice in the back of my head going like, having an opinion on what you think he is. It's like, what's this guy now? Who's this guy? So I kind of shut that thing up for a second. And when he picked up the microphone, and when he spoke, you absolutely listened. <laughs> the insights that this man has, ridiculous, off the chart. So within about five seconds, the monkey chatter shut up, moved to side, and I was like, oh. <laughs> transfixed by what he was saying, simply because he spoke from his heart and he spoke his own truth. Authenticity, congruency, like on a plate. And that's what got, that's what got my attention actually, Jules. That's what got my attention there. And after we had a chat and then we managed to have a little bit more chats and invite me to his house and I'm really happy to, 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 to know you, man, for sure, really. And what you're doing for the planet is, is, is beautiful, man. I hope you get a chance to touch upon that tonight as well. So, without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to put your hands together for Brother Julian. Thank you, brother. Can I change the rules a little bit and stand while I talk, right? Because I'm, I'm there, there really, Once I sit, I might not get back up. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, thank you, Robert, for putting on this event. And um, I have to be, I'm so thankful to him because he was the first person I reached out when I was starting working on my new book, which is going to be my first book, uh, called The Resilient Entrepreneur. And I said, after we met at Bali Pride, which was totally random, um, and I really tried to keep my mouth shut for once, right? Just as you know, I was sitting there for like an hour listening to everybody. I said, Julie, just keep your mouth shut for once. I couldn't do it. I lasted about an hour and then it was done. Um, but he's an amazing communicator. He's great what he does in the community, how he brings people together. And he was the first person I reached out to when I was looking to get some personal help of becoming a better communicator. Um, I heard an amazing quote about that recently that actually didn't come from me, but might have related to me uh, from Oliver in the back who said, uh, yeah, I heard about this guy. He's a great communicator. Everybody's listening. I was like, hey, there's no communication. That, that's like TV, right? We're not here to do TV. We're here to talk to you and to learn and to get your input. And I'd be very, very thankful if you share the questions that you might have as a young entrepreneur, as a young person starting a business, changing their business, reevaluating their life, of giving me this input so that I can maybe, with my experience and all the mistakes and failures and, and, and wins I've had in my life, can maybe contribute um, to a clearer path forward and uh, help you focus on the things that are truly important. Because almost nothing is as 
frustrating personally as going for a long run, building a company, building a life, and then reaching your goals just to find out they were not your goals after all. And that you might have been living somebody else's dream for so long, it convinced you it was your dream, and you reach everything you ever worked for, and it gives you absolutely no pleasure at all of feeling of achievement. So what I want to do with my book, and again, I invite your questions, is to put down on paper my path that I've had so far, the path of many entrepreneurs I've seen around me, and offer very, very clear input you can turn to the moment you're asking for specific advice in a certain situation. A little bit about myself. Um, I was born in Germany. We talked about this earlier today. It's really random for me not to speak German. I left Germany when I was 17. Actually, I, I didn't even graduate from high school yet. I wrote my last high school exam until noon, and I was on the plane to Italy at 3 p.m. Literally, I hated living in northern Germany. It was cold. It was awful. People were rude. And I really didn't appreciate it. And my only really good childhood memories are my summer vacations in France. So I left Germany very, very early. I went to New York City. Um, I ran a nightclub. I worked for a bank. I started two businesses. I never, I got strangely lucky with my first two businesses that were actually successful. Um, so I said I should never do this again because the odds are going to happen a third time, very limited. And then I worked for an investment bank. And at some point, I started a business to get out of investment banking that got me into investment banking much deeper than where I ever wanted to be. So at this point, I stand in front of you a little bit my experience. I've raised over $70 million at this point for clean tech companies, mainly my own. I've written off uh, about $60 million of debt of different companies, almost as good as raising money. I've done five M&As, I've filed for five patents, I've won shitloads of useless awards, but I got a really great pictures from that. And <laughs> so I've been doing this now for a decade, right? So after a decade, they still come back and I'm like a clean tech startup entrepreneur. And I'm like, after 15 years, it doesn't feel so startup anymore, but I guess in this industry, you're always in a startup situation because you're competing with companies that have been around for 100 years. So we've done all of this, and um, I would say really achieved quite a lot. And then a year ago, all of this suddenly went bust. We were sitting at the Eastern Hotel, not far from here, about 10 minutes, it just opened. We were like the first guest there. I was super excited because we still have an amazing deal, so if you need a good hotel deal, call me up because the prices have gone up and we still have this amazing deal. I could be making some money on that, but it's just not my focus. <laughs> so we're there, we're sitting at the pool, and I get this strange call from one of our investors we just paid back a lot of money to. They charge us 20% interest on a 20 million loan that we repaid within a year, and they're gonna reinvest. And I get a call, or I get on a call with our hedge fund investor, and he says, Julian, sorry man, I have no money. 
I said, how is it possible? You just gave me $20 million. That's a lot of money. I mean, 20% interest. Fuck you, you have no money. They said, no, no, we don't have any money. We're not going to reinvest. And so we sat there, like the three of us, right? You know, Felix and Oliver out here to a project in Asia. You know, first week out, we just see on a weekend trip. Oliver just brought his little laptop back. There was all this brought. First time on the road together, he didn't know what he got himself into. So he had like this little, I don't know what it was, Boss or Louis Vuitton or something fancy little bag that he came with turned out from like three days into like four months. And we stayed at the pool and said, We're not going to reinvest. And so the week before, we were just in England shooting a CNN special, right? We had just voted Fast Company's 2018 most innovative energy company in the world. And a week later, our investor says, We're not going to refund you. Uh, but that's going to cause a problem. I mean, it's not like, you know, we're not eating the money. We have like 160 staff members and a lot of them in the UK, and they tend to get really, really angry if you don't pay their salaries before Christmas. That is not going to be pretty. And I called them back up and I said, we were, at that point, we're raising money at $250 million valuation. And I said, you're absolutely crazy. I can promise you, if you're playing fucking games with us right now, you're going to lose 5 million valuation per day. And I actually totally lied to him. He lost a lot more. So, while we're sitting here at the Eastern Hotel, beautiful fall in Bali, sun shining, our entire operation in the UK went up in flames. And I would love to say this like, you know, metaphorically up in flames. No. It literally went up in flames. Like the workers didn't get their payment on time, blamed it on me and set the whole thing on fire. I actually wanted to go there. I'm so, as my wife would say, Caucasian sometimes. That I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm a lover and not a fighter. I'm like, I was just going to go in there and say, you know, guys, but we're still friends, right? You know, we can fix this together. And Oliver's like, no, no, you don't want to do that. They're going to have your head on a stick, you idiot. You can't pay enough security. You shouldn't do that. I was like, hmm. Yeah, man, I got a point. Next day, they even came back. They did like two-day riots, right? Most people like spontaneously riot. They come in, they take it down. These guys left at 5 p.m. and came back the following morning to continue their riots during their work hours. So we were really fucked, to be quite honest. Um, new wife pregnant with this beautiful little baby over here. You will not remember any of this. But it was a defining moment, and it was actually amazing that all this happened in Bali, which I feel is a place where a lot of people in general come to reevaluate their life, their path forward, what they've learned in the past, and to just kind of check on their inner compass if they are living the life that works for them, not for their neighbors, not for their friends, not for anyone else, their parents, or who the fuck they try to please when they were children. But to reevaluate if the life they're living right now is ultimately for them. And so we had a decision to make. I had a decision to make. Are we going to go on and fight 
or are we going to do exactly what this hedge fund manager wanted us to do? Go away, and then he invested the money to take over my staff, my entire company. We decided to stay. Also, I've been a digital nomad for so long, I didn't have anywhere else to go, to be quite honest. <laughs> so we just decided, best of all alternatives, we're just going to stay at the Eastern, we're just going to dig in, and we're going to get on the phone, and we're going to move on. And the major thing that kept us alive that I would like to share with you today are a few principles of what it takes to build a truly great company that people are willing to make sacrifices for. That day, we're sitting at the Eastern Hotel. Um, I had to think quickly, why are we doing this? Is the vision that drove me to make the sacrifices for myself, for my family, for our investors and anybody else, still strong enough today, still meaningful enough today to go and fight a billion dollar hedge fund. And my decision personally was, it absolutely was. So I called up a friend of mine who had already given me $1.2 million. He's not a wealthy man. He makes money giving music lessons, to be quite honest, in New York City. And I said, we have just been given the greatest opportunity in the last 10 years. We have the chance to take this incredible technology that we have come up with, get rid of all the baggage that we have in the past, reevaluate everything we have ever done, Stop working with the people we don't want to work anymore. Get out the negative energy that we might have accumulated over the last decade. And start from scratch with everything we know now. He sent me the first $400,000 the same day. And said, let's go to war. And we did. It was a loving war, but we did. The first thing, when I was now thinking about what can I pass on to entrepreneurs and what made me stronger in that situation, and while we are back in a place where actually the company is flourishing, where all of our debt is gone, where we're building projects again, and the company is stronger and better than it ever was before, was a vision. A clearly defined vision. And that's what's lacking so often when I talk to entrepreneurs today, when I'm on panels, for example, like when I'm judging, I see all these young kids and they're very driven to do things and they really mean well, but I'm like 43 years old. I suddenly said this, I just don't understand what you're trying to do. And you have been talking for 15 minutes. I got an attention span of 30 seconds maximum on a good day. Make it clear, what do you want? When I started my company, I wasn't starting a company. I was in a place called Awasa, Ethiopia, for the German government to build a power supply. 
And uh, as I said before, I lived in New York City. I lived in the Upper West Side. I grew up in very, very privileged circumstances. Um, when I took the job, I was super proud that I got a job with the government that kind of motivated me as well. I want to do something meaningful, but also my mother was so proud that I had a like, stable income, work with the government. Amazing. Years later, it turned out I was the only person who ever applied for the job. So, <laughs> it was a little bit crushing. But, um, <laughs> so my job was in Awasa, Ethiopia, which is like four hours outside of Addis Ababa. I flew into Addis Ababa. I'm not good at preparing things in general, so I just flew out there. I thought it was a desert. Everything I knew about Ethiopia, I knew from South Park. And um, so I thought it was a desert, to be quite honest. It actually happens to be on an like 1,800-meter-high plateau, and it's freezing cold in the winter, so you should bring some clothes. And I was prepared for the desert. So it changed my dress code to local African style very quickly, because I just didn't have anything to wear. And I woke up one night. I felt so sick. I felt so sick. Many of you know Bali Belly, right? Bali Belly can really hurt. But Bali Belly is nothing compared to the things you can catch in rural Africa. Right? I was so sick. So I rolled over, I was sweating, air conditioner wasn't working, and I tried to go for the light, you know, out of my mosquito net, and there was no light. And I went for my phone, and the phone was dead. I said, oh, son of a bitch, man. how did I end up here when I had such a good life? Why? Why would I come out here? I had to go to the bathroom. There was nothing I could do. I could crap on my bed. I could crap on the floor. I could find the outhouse. Just to give a little bit of an idea, it's a beautiful lake property built by the Eastern Germans in the 80s, and they had an outhouse, like 100 guests and five toilets outside, which was like connected to this wooden path, and it was pitch black outside. I'm there, crawling along, I'm slowly getting delirious, and I'm beginning, you know, I'm, I'm, I really I just want to go to the bathroom. I don't, you know, I don't crap on the floor, I don't do that. I mean, you know, I, this would be embarrassing in the morning. How do I explain that to the maid? So I get on my knees, and I walk through, and it's like, I don't know if you've ever crawled on your knees when it's pitch black in the dark in rural Africa before. It's not pretty. Like, you literally don't know what you're gonna meet. You're like walking through the roaches and the rats and the whatever animals might be out there. And I made it to the toilet slowly, and it was actually a ceramic toilet, I remember that, because the feeling of the cold porcelain on my steamy head was so soothing. And I threw up. I took a big dump, and then I passed out. And like four hours later, I'm waking up in this absolutely filthy place. With my head on the toilet, it was not pretty. And I was like, man, this really sucks. It's 2007, and I'm hugging it dirty toilet bowl in Ethiopia. What the fuck is wrong with this world? This was the best resort in town. So I was there for the government, right? So I went to breakfast. I was still kind of bewildered. I said, you know, I think we have a problem. These people don't have energy. 
is when we don't have energy, you can't run your you, you can't do your harvest when you need to, right? You can't keep your food cold when you need to. You know, everything you freeze gets defrozen six or seven times before you finally eat it. And as a result of it, I mean, I'm a grown man, right? I got so sick. Can you imagine the same thing happens to a baby or a child or anybody who's elderly? I mean, they're going to freaking die. I almost died. So I was like, I talked to people, said, this is really sucks, man. I can't believe they don't have energy. And they're like, yeah, man, that's why you're here. It's like me? <laughs> it's a big continent, right? And I was the only one who actually showed up on the German team. Yes, you're the only one here. So my question was, how hard can it be in a country where the sun always shines, where everything is green, everything grows, where people have plastic bags, where people have so many resources, rivers, everything else, how freaking hard can it be to convert that into energy when you really need it so you can run your fridge and you have to pitch black night pass out on the toilet? How hard can that be? And so I went back to Germany. I actually had to be flown out because like after a week of food poisoning, I was like seriously delirious and it was not getting any better. Flew back to Germany, went to Berlin and I said, listen guys, we have to do something. I mean, because I truly believe that with knowledge comes responsibility. I might be a little bit alone with that. So, but my feeling was, I was 26 years old, was um, who's going to solve this thing? It's not going to be solved by the farmer because he is working hard enough to keep his family and himself alive. So my German fucking lazy research colleague should just get off their pompous ass and finally come up with something useful. And I held a quite a big speech in Berlin about exactly this fact because everybody told me power plants need to be big power plants need to be expensive because they need all these amazing safety measures we will never bring power to rural Africa it simply doesn't work as I listen I don't believe in this and if we don't fix this if the Fraunhofer Institutes in Germany and German engineering or American engineering doesn't come up with a solution we might be freaking flying to Mars but we still have a billion people who have no solid access to electricity and literally are dying or hugging their toilet bowls if they have a toilet. So I got a budget of about 500,000 euros in six months to come up with a solution. And I'm not an engineer, right? So for me, it's amazing because uh, I didn't know what the hell we were doing. But I took the 500,000 euros in six months and after that time, we had absolutely nothing. So now we're about 119.5 million behind and about 11 and a half years on delivering our technology solutions. So we have calmed down a bit, but we're still working on the same process as we did back then. And I assembled a team and we knew we we're gonna need more money. And I defined the vision, what we do back then said my work, my contribution to this world, my life from this point forward was gonna be dedicated to bringing clean electricity, heating and cooling to the people who need it most in rural areas of the world. 
That is actually one sentence. The challenges that come with it and everything that goes into it, you can fill books with. You can fill week-long symposiums and discussions and everything else. But the core vision to bring clean electricity based on waste or what grows on site to the people who need it most in rural communities all over the world has summed up a massive humanitarian, technical, society effort into one sentence. And that sentence, the evening we're sitting at the Eastern Hotel and I couldn't wait for my friends back in the US to wake up because I really needed their money. We barely had enough money to make it through the weekend. This was sustained our business. What made people invest into me, into our vision, into our technology, even after 12 years of building and losing a company in the moment of our biggest failure. Because the vision is what sustains you outside of whoever staff members working on it. If it's a German AG or a US Limited or all the other corporate bullshit we start to get caught up in. It's a vision that can sustain your business, not just while you're founding it, but it gets very easy to get excited about it, but for a decade and beyond. So when I'm now going back and think about what I believe I can bring to the next generation of entrepreneurs, this exactly this building blocks that I see are so often missing in business plans of people, of young kids coming out of university that are fully driven, that I think I might be able to help with. So the first thing, the biggest thing, I think, is vision. And the second thing is to clearly define the vision of what you are trying to do. If I can sum up something as complex as what we're doing for the last decades into one sentence, it should be a lot easier for most businesses out there. So my one step for everybody to get started, and that's what my book is focusing on, is really to nail down your vision, put it into one sentence, and how you're going to execute on it. And that's gonna be your compass and your radar for the years to come. The second point, I really had to think about when I came to Bali. Was the thing I was always worst at. And there was personal health. Something so, so simple. Right? Bali people are very, very health conscious, but I'm from Germany, and we, we're really not that much. Like we're in the game of killing ourselves as quickly as possible with pork and alcohol, whatever it does for you. <laughs> I got in the game, as many entrepreneurs out there, as a sprinter. Right? I thought, honestly, we're gonna have all the rural electrification and waste problems in rural Africa fixed in under 18 months. Was ambitious, I it was gonna be fast, but you know, that once it's moving, it's like, you know, like Domino, it's gonna be just moving. Two, three years, we're gonna be done. We're gonna have a major contribution. I'm gonna be living on the beach on a beautiful island somewhere. 
And then the first three years were over. And the only thing where we were was we were much more debt than before. We had much more obligations. And nothing we built ever worked. So over time, our perception changed. We went from let's save all, change all the issues and fix all the issues in rural Africa within 18 months to let's try to build something that doesn't blow up in a week. <laughs> but that's where we were stuck. Like everything we built just blew up. El Gore came from California. We used to have uh, Tyner Perkins as one of our investors. <laughs> so he's chairman of the board. So El Gore flew to Europe to see one of our, 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 our pilots. And it just opened. And he came in. It already wasn't running anymore. Right? So we gave him this whole like hour-long tour through the premise. It was at the Kiesi in Germany. It was a beautiful site outside. It was like 7 p.m. You couldn't see anything. So like we like going on, you know, before my time was outside. El Gore taking this our long trip through the Bavarian woods just to distract from the fact that the machine wasn't working. He walked in, 16 million prototype, right? It took three years to build, seven years of planning in total. And a week later, and it never ran again. So we went back to the drawing board, said, but now we're gonna do it better, right? Do another 20 million, is built, now we did this in Italy, of course, you know, venture-backed company, so if we fail, we're not just gonna fail, we're gonna fail twice as big. So the next project is gonna be twice as expensive, twice as big in Italy, so it's further away, more difficult for us to manage. And a week later, boom. And recently somebody called me up and said, oh, I think we found one of your power plants. I said, how did you get my number? <laughs> I don't know you. And he's like, yeah, it's like in this building. And it's like five stories tall. And we don't know what to do with it. We're supposed to sell a bankruptcy auction, but nobody wants to touch it. I said, I, I don't know who you think you're talking to. I, I, I know nothing about this. I'm like, first thing, I've never even been to Italy. He said, but there's this TV special with you on Rai television. <laughs> You're standing in front of the machine, I'm like, this face could have been anyone, anyone, I don't know, I got no clue, I just don't know. So seven years later, and it's not like we were in this place, we were like running, right? We had to gain new money, and investors, and the pressure was getting bigger, and bigger, and bigger to actually deliver something that works. So I got into an industry as a sprinter, and had absolutely no regards for my own health, well-being, or how to stay in the game long enough to win. Thank God we don't have slides tonight because my wife hates when I put up these pictures. But over the seven years, when it looked to the outside like we're doing amazingly well, like we got 100 million in, we did New York Times, CNN, Mashable, everything out there, I gained about 35 kilos. And I was literally trying to drink myself to death as quickly as possible. And this is actually the question, you forgot that, when we were at Bali Praia, where I couldn't keep my mouth shut. Because one of these young entrepreneurs was like, how do you deal with the pressure? 
And I don't know who in the panel said, well, you just have to be really good at what you say. They said, fuck you, no! That's not the right answer. That's not the right answer. The answer is drugs and sex and alcohol. <laughs> that's the real world. Everything else is wishful thinking. I think that's the moment I joined the conversation. I just couldn't stay honest. Like, this was the worst advice ever. Like, depends, of course, what you do. But in the real world, you know, if you go to Silicon Valley, you, it's going to be very difficult to find one CEO running a tech company that's not taking drugs, sleeping pills, alcohol, or the combination of the three. It's not just being better. You're in a hostile environment. So I had to, at the age of 40, literally turn my entire life around and had the luxury that I could move myself to Puerto Rico, a beautiful Caribbean island from northern England, a construction site which almost killed me, and turn my life around. Many people don't have the luxury. So when I go back now and see young people going into business, I think one of the most important things they can learn from my experience is to prepare for a marathon. And you prepare very different for a marathon. You don't sprint for 20 kilometers and feel great about yourself because you just sprinted for 20 kilometers. Nobody can really do that, right? And then somebody comes up and you say, hey, you're doing great, only 25 kilometers to go. And you're like, what? 25, nobody told me it's a marathon. I thought it was at the finish line. It's a terrible feeling because at that point you powered yourself out. So preparing for a marathon instead of a sprint I think is one of the major lessons that I neglected and I really then had to adjust taking losses heavily midway through the race. And the third thing, out of all these things that come to my mind now as I'm thinking about how do I put this on paper, all these questions, what it takes to be an entrepreneur, might be the most important lesson, at least for myself, of all. And that is the challenge to enjoy the ride. And that has so many things that come with it because the ride is not going to be fun all the time. We live in an incredibly hostile environment, especially when you work with institutional bankers, investment banks, everything else. They're not there to make a better world. They're there to fuck you over. Their position is to get as much equity in a good business as possible. Where's that equity going to come from? From you as the founder, right? So you are working in a hostile environment where people just want to give you enough to get you moving and keep you moving, but take everything else from you. Despite that, I found that maybe the most important lesson of this process was to keep the joy, to find joy in your daily life, even though it might not seem relevant to closing the next big race, is the joy of living every single day, taking the liberties that you might have an entrepreneur, the incredible liberties. Out of my failure, one of the greatest things in my life actually allowed me to do that. When I reset the business, I said, I'm going to be running our company from Changu Bali. How cool is that? If you don't want to invest in that because you think I'm sitting on the beach, fuck you, I don't care. Somebody else will. So the incredible benefits you can bring for yourself as an entrepreneur of having that freedom of designing your own life and designing something that you feel on every level 
resonates with what you want to do, resonates with the life that you want to build for yourself, lives without the limits that are important to you to be happy as a human being and to define what your goal is, what you want to bring to society overall in this limited time and opportunity we have as human beings on this planet. And therefore, into this decision, how am I going to build a business I can enjoy for the long run, build a vision that other people want to follow and are willing to make sacrifices for? Communicate that clearly and enjoy the process as long as it takes, because it will take a lot longer than you ever anticipated. Are probably the greatest lessons I've learned over the next decade. Thank you. People don't get there. Like they ask the same questions. The last guy's like, "Were you not listening?" Okay. Any questions? Adrian. Yeah. Thanks, Julian. Very inspirational. Uh, agree about the vision. Uh, question about the vision, though. Uh, is it important to have a competitive theme to the vision, like to be the first, the best, the cheapest, the, you know, whatever? Doesn't matter to you, personally. For me, no, I think as long as it motivates me. Exactly. I mean, I, I think, um, I don't generally, I mean, when already people start that pitch and say, like, you know, we're the Uberization of rubber stamps, I'm like, what the fuck? Right? Again, it brings back to the authenticity factor. So if it resonates to you, it needs to keep you going. I mean, I think the vision generally, it's not out there for an investor. You're going to have different explanations around it, all the fluff, depending on who you're talking to. But I think for yourself, it should be a vision that single-handed relates to you. And not, if you start making sacrifices already on your clear vision, I think it's going to be difficult. So I would keep it as personal and as authentic and meaningful to yourself. And the stuff around it will come naturally anyway. So I, I would take all of that out because that's, that's all how-tos and other factors, but it's not the core, right? I think the vision really should be about the core, and if you want to add one sentence, add why you want to do it. What are you doing, and why do you want to do it? What is the problem, what is the solution, what can you bring to it, and why is it important to you? Thank you. Thank you very much for that inspirational uh, speech. Uh, I really love this line that you, you said, it's really beautiful. A, divine, a clearly divine vision is what sustains your business. That's, that's very powerful. My next question is like, I can't wait to read your book, so when, when can we <laughs> get, a, get, a, get a copy? Um, I'm working on it. So at least everybody sign up on that list. And uh, I'll, I'll read. The, the issue about writing this book, right? Um, I wasn't really planning on, on writing a book in general, but like you meet other people and they're like, you know, I wrote a book in 16 hours. You know, Robert's one of these people is super, super fast. And, but I'm so German sometimes. I'm like, you know, I've been gone for so long. I just can't do that. So I started the 10 superpowers of entrepreneurship. And then I did another speech two weeks later and I was like, I was already 20 superpowers. Yeah. <laughs> and 
Then I taped the whole thing for like an online course. And then it was like at five hours and 40 minutes. And now I have to condense it down. Because I think the challenge we have is that being an entrepreneur gives you so many opportunities and, and such freedom and leverage to truly design the life and impact that you're looking for. I cannot just do that down in 60 hours. It's so personal, it's so individual, it's so authentic what needs to drive that vision and the execution that um, I, I'm just gonna take a little more time, right? But I'll please sign up and put you on the list. I'm going to finish this thing up. It's going to be great. <laughs> so, so a question just jumped in. So, uh, so when you were, you know, we've obviously had a chat. When you were in the middle of that whole time, sex, drugs, rock and roll, all the rest of that, and other people looking in thinking that, you know, you have the best life, you know, your product doesn't work, yet your company is the values of off the charts, you know? And then you realize that you've been caught in a trap, right? Which is that trap of, you know, you go out for VCs, you get investment, and then you realize that they own you, right? So if you could share with us, whatever comes up for you, um, some of those darkest moments, when you realize that, and what you did about it, I mean, my meaning about the VC world is might be a little bit harsh. Um, and I, I got no training to get into that, right? And that's something we discussed earlier. It's like if you, I talked to a friend of mine, he says, you know, he trains people who go to crisis regions for the military. And all these people get like a million dollar training, right? If, you, if you're a Navy SEAL, they invest a lot into you to make decisions in a hostile environment under pressure as well as possible. They have an entire structure that's like, you know, a trillion dollar industry preparing people for that. When I got involved, I don't even like bankers. No offense, I know there's one over here. This is nothing personal. But generally, I just, I got out of banking not to deal with bankers. So um, I did this because, again, I had this vision and it, it was a necessary evil to go through the process of where I wanted to be. Um, The hardest moments for me always to figure out working with institutional investors in general is that they are fundamentally out there to fuck you. Right? The VC business in itself, I find, is a ginormous scam. It is the definition of a Ponzi scheme. And I please don't really, I might still need the money at some point, so please don't put that on the internet. But we were worth more money when everything we built blew up than we are now, and to be off by like a factor of 100, right? We were worth 100 times more when we built shit than we are now when we can make a serious contribution to society. And that sums up the frustration of somebody who's playing a game that is not theirs and that they don't appreciate. I spend about three nights every week sleeping economy class on some kind of an Asia flight. I used to run Germany, the UK, East Coast, West Coast, Japan, Philippines simultaneously in person for three years. It means I travel again and again every single night. My, my, 
I couldn't sleep at night. I couldn't sleep everywhere, but I couldn't sleep at night. I, I have an, an, an older daughter who is 11, and I was visiting at home, and, and, and this neighbor was like, oh, would you like to have some water? And this little smart-ass punk, she's like, Papa doesn't drink water. He only drinks alcohol and coffee. <laughs> oh, jeez. And I was like, that is so... Oh, yeah, she's actually... <laughs> <laughs> If you start your day on 14 espressos in the morning, yes, you only drink coffee and alcohol at this point. So for me, the biggest challenge really was trying to keep what I wanted to do, an environment alive that has nothing to do with what we wanted to do, with people who don't care what we do, that is hostile, that is, I mean, I would honestly even say, and please don't post that, Corporate investor investment is the enemy of what fundamentally I try to do. But in order to be successful in my world, I needed the money of Wall Street. And so that stretch of being an impact guy that literally went out there to change the world, but at the same time needs to be a Wall Street Silicon Valley guy I think we use the toughest stretch and it creates a lose-lose situation, which you feel, at least I felt personally for years, there was no way out. In the last financial deal, I personally guaranteed. So when the company went under, which they took over, I didn't just leave the company with no money, I left with 20 million of debt. They made sure that if I ever decide I don't want to work for this company anymore, that I would be financially ruined for life. And I think that's the biggest stretch personally you have to live with is say, listen, hmm, all right, so you want my firstborn too, or what else you want from me, right? Because they're out there to fuck you and put you in a position where they own you for the rest of your life. And in my experience of doing this now, I've had the chance to see many entrepreneurs like me who started in the late 2000s of building clean tech companies when, when it really became a thing. None of these people Unless you're Elon Musk, and he's a horrendous example, if ever anybody quotes him again, fuck you. No other clean tech entrepreneur out there that did technology development, at the end, when they're successful, 15 years later, owns any part of their own company. You go from round to round, and they put benchmarks in there that you're gonna fail again, and fail again. At every step along the way, you own less of the company, you have more risk, you have signed more guarantee, till you finally drop on the floor. And so I think this whole wheel, I don't know what the alternative is, to be honest, there's a new wave of impact investment and other things, but I think generally my advice on raising funds, if you can avoid it, don't do it. I mean, I think that the financial world is fundamentally hostile to anybody who wants to make a difference in this world. But that's my personal opinion, please. I still use this guy's right? <laughs> so the next question pops right in is that because um, you have a pretty big, clear vision, right? And it's a very humanitarian, big, clear vision. So you spoke about the world that you were surrounded by, almost like swimming in shark-infested waters, right? So where did that vision come from and why is it so important for you? As strange as it might seem, my, my mother is a quite well-known politician. Um, she's a quite incredible woman. She was the first uh, female attorney general in Germany. 
made a career as a, as a single mother uh, in, in drugs, as a sex, drugs, and crime prosecutor, and became the first um, female attorney general. Um, so I would say I have the privilege as the following generation that I can be more relaxed about what I spend my time with. Right? I said, if you are the farmer in Ethiopia, you got to make sure your family survives the day. I was born out of the privilege, and I have to say, otherwise I could have never done this. I have the privilege of, by the age of 20, to decide what I want to do with my life. So I went into music, right? I was a singer, and then I thought it was kind of pointless. I wasn't a world star by 23, so I quit. And so I had more the luxury, which is the biggest luxury. So when people make fun of like the little kids, and when I used to live in California, and you have all these enthusiastic kids coming out of USC, and they're like, oh, they're just trust fund kids. They don't know, like, who else is gonna change the world, right? If you need to feed your family, and go on the rice field 18 hours a day, you're not, you don't have the means to change the world because you have to get fucking food on the table. So the only people who can do that, obviously, are people that have the chance and the opportunity and the privilege to think outside of the box. And uh, which was also about my upbringing very strange. I, even though I come from a hardline prosecutor's household, my family also totally hippies. Um, which I don't talk often about because it gets people by surprise. Because um, I don't look so hippie-esque in my body standards. I'm wearing pants and everything. So <laughs> um, and I think I've learned over the last 25 years to not come off so hippie-esque after all. But in general, when I go back to what drives me personally, I simply don't need much. Like, I have a beautiful wife, I have beautiful babies, who's actually crawling, hello. Um, I love living in Bali, I love being on the beach. I need, for myself personally, you know, three to 4,000 euros a month to have everything in life that I want. And that gives me, since I'm a great salesperson, I'm very good at what I do. Um, the leverage of even saying, even if I want to sell properties tomorrow, I think I'm going to be fine. So I feel, and I think it's a luxury and it's a privilege, yes, that I can truly do with my life what I want to do. And that's not only gives me the pressure to execute on this thing, it also gives me the freedom to execute on this thing, because ultimately I know that I'll be okay. <laughs> so, back to the question, what drives me? I really think somebody has to do it. I think it should have been done a long time ago. I think we're too good at what we do technically now to stop, because anybody else that wants to go to thermochemical conversion of solid carbonaceous fuels, which is kind of what we're doing, which is like totally back to the future kind of shit, needs to go 10 years back, spend 120 million again, and I don't see anybody else crazy or stupid enough to do that. So I guess there are many big companies who have tried, after three years they give up, right? There are big companies that have tried to do exactly the same thing we do. After three, four years, if stuff still blows up, they give up. I'm probably the only one crazy enough to do it for a decade. And this is why we're now at a point where I honestly, I think if we don't see this thing through and get it up and running, and then it can happen whatever once, right? But if we don't do this, it's not gonna happen. And we're still gonna sit here 15, 20 years from now, there's still gonna be blackouts in Indonesian islands, there's still gonna be massive issues in, in Africa. And I think we're so close to solving that problem that it's driving me the last mile. And then the young kids need to take over at some point, right?
Okay, so one more question from me then. The hands are going up now. So uh, the 11 year old daughter that you have, so where there's a few parents here that I can see in the audience. So is there anything um, that you would have done differently or anything that you could, um, advice that you could give to people like myself or people like Adrian over here who are trying to make their way, um, but also have family and commitments there to take care of as well. So you have two beautiful daughters, one isn't here. So yeah, was there anything you would have done differently there? Um, I got actually three girls, and I have a granddaughter at 42, which I think is impressive. And I think my basic advice in general on this thing, and it's absolutely fundamental, don't take relationship advice from me. <laughs> it is kind of on, on the long list of all the people, are, all the things I really suck at, relationship advice is like number one. So I got absolutely nothing to contribute because I'm, I'm in the place where I am, I'm happy where I am, I'm, I'm thankful, I'm appreciative of where I am in my life personally, and from a business perspective, but um, there are obviously many, many things that could have gone better and differently in the past, or maybe not that, who knows, in hindsight, but I'm really not a relationship coach. I, I, really, <laughs> I really appreciate I think you do much better than I do, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate your honesty, yeah. all right? Super cool. You've got some hands, so I'll go with Rhonda, then we'll go to Marina, or we'll start with Marina and go to Rhonda. Julian, you're amazing. Thanks for sharing that. I really Thank truly you. appreciate. I appreciate your honesty and the transparency that that you offer because many would like to disguise the problems and the pains that you went through to showcase, oh, look what I've done now, right? But you, you you don't do that. And you said something that was really powerful, and I want to address two things. One was that um, many judge and say, oh, you're a trust fund kid, so that, of course you're going to do that. But you made a great point. I think that I needed to hear, and all of us do, that those that are need to feed their families, they're never going to be the ones that can change the world, possibly eventually once they get to that point. But our minds think differently. And I thank you for, for bringing that up because there are there's certain scenarios that all of us are in our lives that there are some others that just have a different space to work within. And we have to respect that. And that's a really bold space to stand in because it's almost going to come off arrogant, but fuck arrogant. We want to change the world and that's what you're doing. So my, this is about thanking you for standing up in your fucking space and doing it and knowing that's your space. So I think, I think it just deserves so much credibility and yeah, just acknowledge it. So thank, thank you. I think it's a, it's a very important point, and, and you were scratching on the, on the thing is, as long as you're still playing the game, right? And I said it's a hostile game. One of the other big points I'm trying to make in this book, and that might be counterintuitive for everybody, is even though I'm very honest when we talk about this thing now, because I don't have to play the game anymore. But if you're playing the game, positivity is the most important tool you have. You can never ever go outside and be negative about your vision, your company, or anything you brought yourself into. Because people are like, oh, you know, I get this, people say, well, we're in trouble. You should tell your investors that if they don't give you more money, we're going to go bankrupt. And I said, that is the single-handedly worst advice yeah. ever. Yeah. 
You never get people motivated with fear. And that, you know, my investor, they have shivers of mine. They don't care. When they think that I, when I tell them that we are in trouble, they don't think, oh my God, my money is gone. They think, oh, we got a fucking lazy, weak CEO. We should find somebody else to either take over the company ourselves or at least get rid of him. So nothing positive ever comes out of that. And that gives you the situation that nobody who is out there still playing the game can ever talk about the game. Because the moment you show any kind of weakness, is that we live in a hostile environment. Like we're not working with people that are there, have share your same vision and your same goals. We have people out there that want to make money. These are sexually frustrated, weird, egomaniac men that honestly think that a third sports car is going to make their life any better. So don't even try to relate to it. It's a hostile environment that's there to fuck you over as a founder. And so as long as you're playing the game, don't do it. And that's why nobody does it. And that's why every founder out there that has like doubts and might not have all the great answers like immediately available, starts doubting themselves and gets weaker. I was a little bit lucky. Like my mother is, is such, a, such a beast to a certain extent. Um, I would sometimes call her up for advice. You know, and I was like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know what to decide. And she's like, it fucking doesn't matter what to decide. Just decide something nobody knows anyway. Just the worst thing is not to decide anything. If you go and take the punch, take the fucking punch, but stop whining like a little pussy. <laughs> so, great advice, right? Because nobody knows. And again, there's one of these great things about entrepreneurship, though, as well. You get to fuck up so many times, sometimes on a daily basis, but nobody even can almost judge you for it because there's like no guideline, right? There's no pathway. You can't like learn how to be successful entrepreneur. You step along the way, going to university, you can maybe have a tool set. That was my ideas of things that might help you, other people experience along the way. But you have the freedom to really make amazing mistakes on a daily basis and then stand up and say, listen, boom. It blew up, but it was to the best of our technical knowledge of the time. Hopefully in five years, we'll know more. Right? But that's why nobody talks about it. Bold, right? It's just called taking bold action. Uh, my specific question is, you mentioned the difficulty of, of compromising your values, taking on funding, right? Bad VCs are. And um, how did you do it now? Because I, I, either I missed it or I'm not certain as to how you went from taking on and compromising your values to take on money to taking that 400000 from, I think, a gentleman I met at dinner that night in Como. Was that the yes. gentleman? What an amazing human. Wow, what a great guy. And I, that was the seed that I heard it started it. Was there another way that you maintained or were able to fund the company without compromising your values? Or was there always a little gray area that you had to move forward with in order to fund it and maintain what you were looking to achieve? Um, we did... Three things that kind of came together, right? And that maybe came surprising. Um, the one thing is, as long as you still need other people's money, you're always be partially a whore, right? There's no much you can do, right? You just have to live with that, that that's life. But you can choose your suitors more carefully now, right? You can get the more attractive ones. You don't have to take every old fuck that comes along. Um, any kids know? Sorry. <laughs> That was too late anyway. <laughs> so um, we did three things. Um, the one thing is when you have all these people being involved in your business and never estimate that, it brings certain costs with them. 
right? But my co-founder of my last company was an okay guy when I met him. He was also a heavy alcoholic and became a totally drunk racist, right? One of his internal struggles, a 50% partner, and when he had like five drinks, he was like the biggest racist I've ever met, right? So my wife is black, we're in Africa, that is a problem. If you have a business partner that at a business meeting after three words start lolling out the N-word to everybody, you're like, eh, it doesn't really fully align with my vision here. Awkward, awkward, and so I had to kind of squeeze him out more and more. So he had like an entire office. That was like, I gave him six or seven people office as a playground just to keep him busy and off my back. Then the next investor came on board and said, listen, I don't understand your financials. I want to have weekly reports. So suddenly I had to hire two expensive people that did nothing else all week and put reports together for him. That cost as much almost as the investment that he gave us. Then the third investor comes along and says, listen, Julian, I want to invest in your company, 500,000 euros, but you have to live in Los Angeles. Suddenly you live in Los Angeles in a, in a hotel and you figure out that there's $500,000 you just didn't spend on your vision, you spend on your hotel bills and having expensive dinners. So be very selective about who you take money from. So what we did, all this baggage, which was the beauty of the investors taking on the old company and firing me, when I rebuilt the company, I didn't need all of this. One example, and some of you guys know this, we work out of Z Cafe. A year ago, we spent 25,000 euros every single month on office space. There is not enough coffee in Changu every single day to pay that much on my office rent being here. We work out of co-working space. I save 25,000 euros a month on office rental space. So we cut everything down. We have gone from burning 1.5 million euros a month. Every month, I had to raise 1.5 million euros for a decade. Gone down to like 20,000 euros. So, cut the cost. Get rid of all the bullshit around you that you're supposed to have. You used to have these big advisors that even came in. They charged so I've never heard anything good. The only thing I learned from high-level advisors is how shitty they are. I'm like, we have the head of strategy at Daimler. Like Daimler is the parent company of Mercedes. You know, most of you guys probably know what that is. Um, he was suddenly on my board to advise me on innovation. He was the least innovative person I've ever met in my life. If you wouldn't have known, I thought he worked all his life at a, at a post office, at best, to be quite honest. And then he got all these things, all this would get added up. So first thing we did, we looked at all of our expenses and is it really relevant? And we got rid of it. Then we looked, and that was a shocking experience, we looked at our staff list. We had 160 engineers. And my CTO was very close with me, we spent years with each other, sharing rooms of construction sites and everything. And we literally spent, spent much more time with him than, than with anybody else. And um, we went back through our list and we came up on our entire engineering staff and said, if we have to pay for it, we're going to keep three people out of 160. And the other 157, we have never missed. And so you go through all the list and suddenly the cost gets less and less and less. And then we went back to what exactly we needed. And that's, that's what, when we raise money now, I'm, I'm very... Even though I've done it for years, but I get very upset. If an entrepreneur comes to me now and says, I need 10 million to grow my business. I'm not one of these people say, what do you need the 10 million for? If you can explain to me down to the cent, what do you need the 10 million for? 
and why VC is the only way to get there, I, I don't buy it. If you need 10 million euros because you, you need somebody stupid enough to give you 7 million to spend on Google ads and Facebook ads, okay, and you need VCs, because nobody else is gonna be stupid enough to do that, it's not within their business model. But everything else, we now went back and say, how, what do we need to get from A to B to C? How much does it cost? And what is the easiest way of staying with, with our limited resources to get there? And for us, a big part of government grants in Germany that can cover about 80 to 90%. So we don't need that much money ourselves anymore. You know, we live in Bali, we don't live in Los Angeles. We save a lot of money on that. We cut all the other crap. Um, I don't have my $3,000 AT&T bill anymore. I got my, you know, 200,000 Indonesian rupees telecom sell internet. <laughs> <laughs> and all these things that come together. So spend less money, focus on what you really want to do, and also be willing, now even if people come and it's not the right fit, or it's not big enough, or it's more hassle than it's in, you just walk away. I'm now for the first time in the position to say, listen, it might take us six months longer. We're in Bali, I'm fine with it. I'm, I'm done running. You look a lot healthier than I think. Thank you. Yeah. I feel a lot better, I've got a great life. I gotta say, the last year was probably, from a balance sheet perspective, Personally, I went from about 120 to 130 million euro valuation, personally to minus 20. And it still was personally the best year of my adult life, despite everything else. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Hi, Julian. Um, thanks for sharing. It was very um, inspiring. And um, you obviously have uh, ups and downs, lots of ups and downs. And my question is, do you have any um, favorite tools to share how to keep you motivated and focused outside the you know the drugs, alcohol, and everything else, the positive tools that you do to keep your mind, to keep to your um, vision and keep going and continue with your project? Is there any particular things you do in your mind or even exercise or something? Again, I'm very German, right? I, I don't, I, I don't really meditate or anything. Um, there's so many people who are much, much better with that. Um, I think something I have learned in general is um, I don't work alone. Right? Let's be quite honest. We got Felix and Oliver in the back. Um, they mainly do things that, to be quite honest, except for some of the things that Oliver's, I might as well, I could be doing myself, right? Because I'm quite good at many things, or, okay. But the problem is if you really work by yourself, you got nobody that forces you to keep on moving. It gets very, very easy to quit. So I think to have a certain balance of responsibility of having to pay salaries and having other people that might pick up the slack when you're not motivated and gives you a certain structure can be a great tool. Because we do live in a world, obviously, it's, 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 there's so many opportunities in this world. There's like one different company I feel I could found every single day. I find a problem, I feel fixable, and a company I could start minimum three to four times a week. But I don't do that. Why don't I do that? Because I'm not done with my vision that I set out to do. So I'm still 100% committed to what we're doing, and I think the one thing that can help you is having a support system around you, can be staff, can be family, that checks in with you and pushes you in the moments when uh, you're maybe not interested in your own vision so much anymore. Otherwise, I mean, I know you guys are married, it's a lot like marriage, right? 
this got the great amazing phase that everybody talks about. And um, you know, where, where you, there's nothing else on this planet you want to do than running your business. And then there are the other parts when you know you just might have to create the appetite as you go along. And I think the business is very, very similar, and it should be treated the same way. Nobody wakes up every morning burning for your business. But the mixture out of fear, responsibility, loving what you do, staying your course, having these little wins along the way and the little losses, um, I think can sustain the vision. It's my, there's no, not one thing that I can. Uh, Julian, thank you again for your honesty and your transparency.